something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, dude. The 90s called. With Christine Taylor and David Lasher. Hey, dudes. Welcome to the Hey, Dude, the 90s called podcast. I'm David Lasher. And I'm Christine Taylor. Can we just talk about how great Ben Stiller was last week? That was so much fun. That was such a fun episode. There were things, honestly, that I hadn't even. It's just a fun experience to have in that form of because you don't get to talk about all that stuff when you're talking about the rest of your lives together. Yeah, I I mean, I mean, you had told me, like you said, I know all this stuff. So you, you know, kind of come up with your questions. But I think you you learned some stuff too, right? I Absolutely. Mean- no, it was great. It was, so, and he had so much fun. And um, yeah, I, I, I just love that, that he's such a fan of our podcast. Oh, I know. Yeah, that, that too. I mean, he's so supportive. But uh, yeah, the, it was so much fun preparing for his interview because I got to go back and look at all this, you know, everything from the Ben Stiller show and reality bites all the way through something about Mary and, uh, and meet the parents. It's like mind blowing how much amazing work he's done. And the interview is incredible. Yeah. It's so good. We will have to, uh, you know, down the line, we'll revisit some other stuff, but, um, we have a great guest, our next guest, yeah, I guess he's he's an old friend of yours. I this guess, is well, neighbor. I mean, yes, it, it things that, uh, you know, we were like sort of two ships passing in the night and had met each other a few times. But um, we have Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows, who just yes. David, you said it. He he was our soundtrack to the 90s. Everything. Oh, yeah. Every song, every album. Um, and uh, and we're excited to talk to him. 
Yeah, I have so much to ask him because honestly, having moved to LA in the early '90s, I feel like a lot of that music is so drenched in, in, uh, you know, living in LA at that time and reaching for artistic, creative endeavors and and fame and fortune and all that stuff. And I feel like it really spoke to me. It it meant so much to me. So much. And don't you have with songs of of theirs where like. It'll bring you back to an exact moment in time. I know music does that in general, but I feel like they're like if I hear Mr. Jones, I can have a like immediately get yeah, where transported you were, to Santa Monica at whatever restaurant I was at with that group of people at that exact moment of my life. And that's just really the gift of of um, music in general, but theirs in particular. So um It's so true. I was driving on PCH the other day to um drop my daughter off. And in my head, I'm thinking it's been so long since I've seen the ocean. I guess so I should. Cool. <laughs> so cool. So let's introduce yes. Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. Adam. Hey, Christine. Hi. Oh my God. How you guys doing? Thank you for being with us, man. We so appreciate it. No problem. David and I should just start by saying we, first of all, are huge fans. Adam, I've met you many times over the years. We have a lot of um, intersecting friends and moments that I think that are very 90s centric. And I don't even know if you remember, but I remember, which we'll get into. Yeah, I want to hear you about know, that. <laughs> but um, you're actually our first guest that we like don't have a, a like personal connection to we did a reunion shows of things we've been on and ben came on and we've sort of had personal connections and even though we've met you're like our first legit guest (laughs) that has said yes to us so score (laughs) um thank you my dear um and we can't wait to talk to you um i will say this that uh christine and i were talking about who to have on this week and we wanted someone uh a musician someone in the musical world and uh, I said, you know, Adam Duritz, uh, you know, the County Crows was like the soundtrack to my life in the 90s when I moved to L.A. And he would be, you know, so incredible. And she like shot me down and said, do you remember what you said, Christine? Did I say we'll never get him? Did I? I no, you said that was the soundtrack to everybody's oh, life. That's You're nothing said. special. And then I probably said, but we'll never get him either. So. Yeah, well, shout out to Heather McComb, all of our good friends, who's not only one of the greatest, most talented actresses, but really one of the kindest, genuine, sweet souls that I know. And she hooked us all up. Yeah, no, it was no problem. I was happy to. We were all very excited at my house when we realized we were living next door to Marsha Brady. Okay, so why don't we just start there? Because we've got a lot to talk to you about just everything music, but when... Did you guys move in to that house? It must have been March or April of 1995, I guess. Okay. Maybe earlier. I moved to LA in January, I think, of 95. And then I, it was a few months later, I think, or a month later. I bounced around hotels for a little bit. I had a bungalow. I I started at the Bellage. (laughs) I had a bungalow at a, the uh, chateau, no, not at the chateau at the Sunset Marquis, of course, yeah, of course, rock stars, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then I think I a friend of mine from the Viper Room, Shannon McManus, who was one of the bartenders there, said that her friend had just built a house and she was moving out of this cottage she lived in, 
and uh, she wanted to rent it out, but she wanted to like know the person she was renting it to. So when I come up and meet her, so got in her car and drove up Laurel Canyon, and it, it turned out to be Christina Applegate. That's what I was gonna oh, say. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. We knew that. So I, my my roommate and I, Jana Levenstein, uh, lived in that house right next door on Lookout Mountain, and we knew Christina owned the house but wasn't living there. And and you know who lived there before you was oh. Victoria Jackson from SNL. Do you remember really? Victoria? Oh, yes, sure, God. sure. Yes, I didn't I think know that. We, yes, we moved in there around '93, I think you know, for, I think we maybe for two, three years, but, um, Victoria was there before you guys. And then we just heard, we were like, someone's moving in and had no idea. And then we just, I think we just saw you one day and I, I we, we really never made the connection as next door neighbors. Like, I don't think we had any, like come over for tea or coffee moments. Did you never come to any of the parties we had up there? Uh, Adam, I, I mean, I, I was a nerd. I don't think I got myself invited to any of those parties. I was traveling oh, wow. in the wrong circles. Well, I we were very been... geeked out when we realized you were next door. And we, we were really <laughs> geeked out when we, cause I had uh, immediately friends of mine had moved in with me. Uh, my friend Henry moved out from new Orleans. He sold a screenplay and moved out to California. Uh, and then I more and more friends kind of moved into the, above the garage. Right. And pretty soon we had way too many people. The whole band for Remy Zero was living there. That's right. Uh, oh my gosh. I had way too many people after a little while. So we moved. I bought a bigger house because I had too many freeloaders living you in my were You needed to expand. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, we, when we found out it was you guys and, and, I mean, it was just the coolest. It was really our claim to fame. We're like, yeah, we're, we, we live next door down in Duritz. <laughs> but you um, didn't go to any of the parties? Or, I, I, that's, this is now my regret. My regret. I know. Do you like how I said coffee or tea? Yes. Exactly Seriously. what we were all Can doing I borrow in the nineties. Sugar from you, Adam Duritz. <laughs> we had lots of barbecues. I mean, Heather was over there all the time. I remember because Heather had been a vegetarian, and I made ribs. And uh, we had one where we did a crawfish boil because a bunch of us were from New Orleans, and uh, and I also made these ribs. And she tried the ribs and gave up being a vegetarian. Stop it. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, at the party. because your ribs were so good. They were. Gibby Haynes <laughs> had taught me to make ribs. We used to have these barbecues on Sunset Boulevard on Sundays in front of the Viper Room. And we would do like Sunday afternoon barbecues. And Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers taught me to make this sort of Texas version of ribs where you boil them first in Dr. Pepper and then barbecue them. And they were really good. And Heather uh, flipped that out. She like took a bite of it because her sister, I guess, uh, Jen was flipping out over the ribs and Heather took a bite and that was all for vegetarianism. That was it. Dude, that's a compliment to your yeah. cooking for sure. <laughs> Pretty proud uh, of that. Yeah, that, that, I can't believe we didn't, I mean, we both knew we, we were living next door to each other. I think really the first time we, we met, and this is what I, I'm not sure if you remember, was backstage at Friends. It was a tape oh, of really? Friends. Yes. And I don't know if it was an episode that I was shooting because I did a, I did a few episodes, but I was back in the dressing rooms. I I, I feel like we might have been in Courtney's dressing room, and I was there with Matthew Perry, and it, you walked in, and Jennifer was. It was just this hang, and I just remember feeling like, what is happening? Like this is one of those cool moments, which I <laughs> I continue to say that as you know, someone who's gotten a chance to meet some really cool people in my life and work with people. 
that still never goes away for me. But I do remember at that time, like in my 20s, of, of just feeling like this is a kind of cool moment. Like we're all just hanging around in a dressing room. And I don't know, uh, you know, we, we met and we may have said we 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 were neighbors because I think by that point you probably had moved out. But um, just a lot of worlds colliding. Um, wow. Yeah. No, I think I still live there then. I didn't move out for another another little while because. Uh, but, you know, I really liked it backstage there. They were they were not only really nice people, uh, but they were all really funny. Backstage at Friends was a lot of fun. I used to love going to those tapings. Yeah, it was a real, like it was a, a hang. Everyone had their friends there and it was just, yeah. um, it felt, it just, it was a very exciting time. And obviously we all knew what the show meant at that time. And it just felt like, it always felt like, you know, seeing you around. And this is something we should talk about too. We will get into the music because I know David has a million questions for you. But it feels to me like you have always been, loved just being around the arts and, and, and like you just said, really funny or something that like you and I, we, we, Ben and I ran into you at a, at a Broadway play, you know, a few years ago. And like, yeah. you just love the art. Like I could just tell the way you talk, we talk theater. And, um, and I think that I just love that. I want to hear more about that in addition to the music too. I think I am. I've always been really obsessed with uh, anyone doing anything you know, the, the kinds of things that we've all done with our lives, the sort of pursuits, they're really hard. You know, they they really demand a lot of passion from you, a lot of dedication. It's not necessarily what everybody wants to do. And you're kind of out there uh, walking on a wire because there is no, you don't get to just go to work every day and have the boss tell you what to do. You have to like go for auditions or, you know, make a record yourself and hope someone wants to sign you. Those are hard. It's like, I have friends who are athletes too. And the, the, the amount of passion and discipline and dedication they put into their lives, that stuff always kind of freaks me out. And so I, I, I'm obsessed with it. I love going to plays. I, I, I love going to plays. I love, uh, especially nowadays, there's all these sort of one person shows stand-ups a lot of stand-ups are writing whole pieces for themselves mike mike, Birbiglia, mike a friend Birbiglia. of mine yes yeah. that show was incredible both of his, his are shows. all of his shows oh, have blown great. me away he and he's been producing them too jacqueline novak had the one get on your knees which i saw three or four times alex edelman has his show it's in london now he's i was just texting with him a couple days ago called just for us about a jewish kid who gets on the wrong mailing list and ends up uh, <laughs> going to some uh, white supremacist meetings because he wants to check it out and see what's going on. You know, like oh, his brilliant. show is really brilliant too. I've been really, but I'm, yeah, like I'm really obsessed with other people being creative because uh, it's a weird club we're all in where we do that sort of thing, that kind of dedication. It's, uh, it's really interesting to me. It's time to hear her side of the story. Joe and Serena sit down for an intimate conversation with Maria Georges on Bachelor Happy Hour. I have to ask, I heard a rumor that you were dating at one point one of Drake's best friends. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Listen to Bachelor Happy Hour on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Bachelor Happy Hour. Listen now everywhere you listen to podcasts and don't miss part two Monday night. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts what's up everybody this is Stephen a smith when i'm not at my day job first tape you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen a smith show podcast Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game-changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As exciting as it is to be backstage at Friends or to be on on the sidelines at a sporting event, I got a little glimpse of what it's like to be uh, on stage at, you know, Madison Square Garden or the LA Forum. And there is nothing like that, man. And and I can't imagine, and I want to get into what your life was like, or has been like, but especially in the 90s, you know, uh, how, how did you meet your bandmates and, and how did the, the band come to be? Um, we were all playing in different bands around the Bay Area, around San Francisco. And uh, like we would play gigs uh, opening for each other or headlining over each other. So we kind of knew each other 
it was a real scene there in the late 80s early 90s you know and uh if you weren't playing or rehearsing one night your friends were and so you're out in the, there were so many clubs and we were out in them every night uh and so you got to know a lot of people and uh we just kind of uh there had been versions of counting crows before this one sort of but at a certain point it was just uh, a bunch of us got together to do some recording we kind of me and dave bryson sort of picked our favorite guys uh from other bands and we we just did a few songs together in the studio because dave had a little uh 16 track studio and we just it just turned out so well we loved it everything we recorded came out like crazy good and so we decided to play some gigs together and it was weird it, it only took a few months um before like all the record companies were beating down our doors because the stuff we recorded was really good um and, and it happened so organically right you all kind of found each other because you appreciated each other's work yeah we were kind of friends and acquaintances and it was like dave and i wanted to do some more recording of some new songs i'd written and he was like who do you want to play with and i think i said uh i want to get charlie gillingham yeah he's in this band uh tender mercies and he they were really great uh and he wanted uh a drummer that he had, he had just recorded his band in the studio that week and then his old bass player from his band and so you know we just kind of got together to do that but it turned out so well that we ended up playing gigs and you know we pretty much I, the other band i was in right then himalayans was pretty successful round here is actually a himalayan song that we covered in counting crows and uh oh my God. so we you know back then it was mailing list we had a pretty I was coming from a everyone was coming from other bands that were doing pretty well. So we actually had these pretty big combined mailing lists. And as soon as we started playing gigs, we had pretty big audiences because Himalayans was pretty big right then as a club band, you know. Um, so you guys got together and within a few months, there was a bidding war from labels to sign you. I mean, yeah, that's, about that's four or five. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's fortuitous, but also deserved and very rare, right? Yeah, I mean, it it helped that like in the versions of Counting Crows before this one, we had done some recording and we had like, we had a 15 song demo tape, which is stupid and makes you look like a rube. <laughs> you should have a two song demo tape because the 15 yeah, song nowadays, demo tape. Nowadays, no one would listen to 15 songs. Yeah, no, not back then either. I know that I found out later that people kind of laughed at us at first, but that 15 song demo tape had uh, Round Here, Anna Begins, Omaha, Mr. Jones, oh Rain King. Oh uh, uh, Are you kidding? Your first demo had all those? Well, yeah, because we had done like three different groups of recordings. So we had about 15 songs that we'd done in three or four different sets. And so when we finally got around to sending them out to people, we sent out the whole thing. And I know that people laughed at it at first, but after a while, when we got managers, they actually kept sending the whole thing out because the response it got was like, first ridiculous, and then oh shit, goldmine, you know, because <laughs> there's exactly. nothing that's more of a goldmine than a band that can actually write songs because that means it'll work next time too. You know, if you can write, and there were so many right. songs, and even the songs that we left off, all the early demos that I didn't think were any good for a record, they sounded really good. Bryson was a great producer, especially for demos and things like that. He had a way of making things sound very, like, uh, digestible. Like, you could hear it. And, you know, like I said, it was 15 songs long. And so it, it was, 
it was kind of a joke, but it was a really, it was the thing that everybody looked at it, laughed at it, and then started playing it, and then feverishly called our managers trying to sign us. So, and plus when yeah, they came to see us, we had big audiences already. We were packing the yeah, clubs. Yeah, you had a fan base. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, you just named five songs off your first hit album. Uh, I mean, and you showed how prolific that you that you could be, you know? Yeah, I mean, half the first album was on those demos. You know, so there was a lot, you know, plus that song, what's it called? Einstein on the beach that we didn't even record for the record, but it was a huge hit later um, from the, that DGC rarities record. Yeah, that was, and your, your parents were both doctors, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just I would, real quick, how did they feel when you said you were going into music? I think they were concerned like any parent would be, <laughs> but they were really, my parents love music. Like they were really, uh, Maybe it would be different if we sucked too, but they or if we were like right. something more challenging for them, like if we had been a metal band or you know hip hop, where they which they wouldn't have understood, you know. Right. But uh, they really liked it. I mean, I think they were concerned because any parent wondering, you know, I was a weird kid anyways, and I had a lot of problems, um, and so you're worried how your kids are going to take care of themselves. I mean, shit, I was worried about how I was going to take care of myself. Sure. Uh, so I'm sure they were. But they weren't like against it at all. They were, uh... my mother was gone a lot then. She was in medical school. So she wasn't around a lot at that point in my life anyways. Um, but they knew you were talented. They, they yeah. appreciated uh, the, the work you were doing. Well, my dad did, I think more because he was there and he, he really liked it. Uh, my mom found it, it's funny. My mom is the more like classical fan. And, and, and there were times where she'd come home to visit and I'd be over at my dad's house, like working on the piano there, playing, you know, and working on a song. And when you write a song, you have to play something over and over and over. And especially back then where I could barely play an instrument, you know, it's a lot of repetition. And my mom would come downstairs and she'd be like, you, do you have to play the same thing over and over and over again? I, I was like, I can't hear it again. Yeah, I kind of do. Sorry. <laughs> it's funny. So I think you're she... self, self-taught when it comes to the instrumentally? You yeah. didn't take lessons? Not really. I mean, I did take some piano lessons when I was a kid, but it, none of it took. It was really that uh, I was in a band when I was 13, I think. My guitar player taught me how to make a major chord and a minor chord. You know, I don't know if you know what it is. It's a major chord. You hit any note, and then you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three. That's a major chord. A minor is one, two, three, one, two, three, four. You know? And so once I knew how to do that, I just kind of, I could futz around on the piano and make things that sounded good. Uh, I still right. can't play by ear. I mean, I can still barely play. Um, to this day, I, I really have to stumble upon everything and figure it out. I'm I'm not a very good piano player. Um, Dude, but your lyrics, I mean, they could really stand alone and be published as a book of poetry. I mean, there, there's not many artists that uh, that I could say that about, but your lyrics are just incredibly beautiful and profound and resonant. Thanks, man. Well, I think I'll work hard enough on the music. I mean, I don't, I can barely play but I'll work until I get the song I want, you know? It, well, what's the process like? Do you write lyrics before, uh, or you get to your bandmates come in with a melody and then you put lyrics to it? Like, cause I just watched the get back documentary and I'm obsessed oh, yeah. with the process of writing great music. Like what, what's, what's the process you guys have? No, I've never written lyrics first for anything. I write okay. either the music first or I write the music and the lyrics together at the same time, kind of, but I've never written lyrics first for any song except maybe the first song I ever wrote. Um, since then, I, I just, 
I'll just work on it. You know, sometimes the band has pieces of music and they'll be playing something and I'll start singing an idea over it. And then I'll kind of ask them what that was and I'll try and put it together as a song, you know, but, but it's always music first for me. Um, it's just more important. Um, but you guys get together when you're writing an album, let's say you guys get together for sessions and who has what idea and let's just all go with that or go with this and, you come in with your contribution or how does that work? No, usually I'll come in with the song um, or I'll write it while we're recording. Um, and and then uh, we'll all get together and play. And I'm, what I am good at is arranging. I can hear stuff in my head. I'm really good at giving ideas to all the different guys for their parts and hearing what should go together. Um, that I have a real talent for. Um, so, but we all work, it's really everybody con contributing. But usually the song is written ahead of time or mostly written ahead of time. Right. But the arrangement, the maestro. Yeah. That's uh... that's the stuff we all do together, which is kind of the more important stuff anyways. You kind of have to, that's what makes a band you love a band you love. Like the ability to get together and make something. Cause you know, songs, they're just skeletons. They're like, it's some chords and some words. It's not much, but then when you get together, everybody figures out how to make it into this song and that's like what the band a really great band that you love the reason they sound the way they sound is because of that work that they do like mm. together i think that's what when you hear the beatles and you could see that in the beatles thing they how much they were able to contribute to each other just sitting there in a room together doing all this stuff that blew right. my mind and, watching that yeah and all the chaos that was going around them and and all the the uh controversy when they got together and they were playing music, it was all peaceful and 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 poetic and beautiful. Yeah, you know? unreal. Our show is about the '90s, and uh, I have to ask you about uh, the first album. I mean, what is it like to have a number one album and to go on tour and promote that album? And what's it like when the tour ends? I mean, it's such a unique lifestyle, and you were, you know, it. it in in the in the middle of the whole thing i mean what what is that like well number two album it never went to number one it spent is about a true? year and a half at number two the next album, Your second album that opened yeah. the second album recovering the satellites was number one right out of the bat um right off the bat the first week out recovering the satellites was number one but no uh well, was mr jones a number one single though uh i don't know i have no idea um but uh yeah, I went to number two and stayed there for like a year and a half. And, and different things would pop up and go ahead of us. Like uh, Bonnie Raitt's album at one point went up to number sure. one. And then Ace of Bass went to number one. And then they would fade out. And then The Lion King went to number one oh, and faded stop. out. And we were just at number two forever. You just like, stayed there. Forever. Wow. Yeah. Sitting for pretty. For a year and a half. Something Sitting like that. Pretty. Yeah. It was on the charts for I a while. Was How's the life on the road though? Did you get, were you into it or was it, uh, was it grueling? Oh, both. I mean, it's, it is grueling. It is, it is something that people, it's hard for people to understand. I, this, the funny thing, we just came back from like two and two plus months in Europe on tour in, uh, uh, like, I guess it was October, September, October of last year. And my girlfriend, uh, came along for the trip. And I was really concerned about how that was going to work out because I've never had a girlfriend come along for a whole tour. And because I've had other friends who came out on tour, uh, 
our, our friend Tony came out as a videographer for a while. And uh, our friend Joe came out training us for a while. And at some point it, it wears you down to the point where there's always crying and there's, there's, there's shame and embarrassment. Something that you do something is <laughs> just like, there's, I'm literally, there's always tears and exhaustion. I mean, it just, it wears you out leaving every day and going to a different city because you think you're on a, at a party, but it's actually work. And so right. we know that, um, but we, through having made that mistake when we were younger a lot, but so I was worried about, about, uh, Zoe lasting for that whole time, but actually she did great. And it, it, the whole band though loves her now and was shocked that she was able to like to hang, get, to hang the whole it's time and not sustain. like not wear herself and destroy herself. And like I said, no tears, like, <laughs> but, uh, that's a win. That is yeah, a win. It was a win <laughs> after how many years, right? Cause at the time, you know, like, especially on the first tour, it was such a big change at first. It was really cool. Cause we were just the biggest worries were how do I keep my voice together? Cause it keeps getting exhausted and, and like, I'm getting nodes and, you know, then uh, the fame thing happened in the middle of it all. And then it was and like, how old were you in that first 30, album in the first 29 and 30. So I wasn't mm -hmm. a kid. I mean, I had, you know, but then there's people chasing you down the streets and that's weird. That was like, there's no way to be prepared for that. You know, like no way at all. I can remember being it, you know, having a day off in, I want to say Birmingham, Alabama, and they're about five blocks down the street. There was like a cineplex and going to see some movies one day. And <laughs> in the middle of the movie, this it's like an empty movie theater. It's just me, you know? And then this door opens in the back. This guy walks in, sees me, comes and sits down next to me and says, Hey, and I'm like, Hey, and he goes, Hey, I'm a big fan. Do you mind if I sit here? And I was like, you know, I'm just trying to relax and watch a movie if you don't mind. And so he, <laughs> kind of gets up and leaves, walks out. And I was like, that was really weird. And then a little while later, guy comes down the aisle again, starts coming in. And I was like, man. And I realized it's it's the guy that was working the concession stand. It's not the kid anymore. And he says, hey, man, I don't know what's going on, but a guy came out of here a little while ago and he's been on the payphone in the lobby for a while telling people oh, no. about you. And no. there are like 200 people outside right now. And I said, oh, my God, you know, you're fucking kidding me. And he goes, no, if you want, there's a a back entrance you can you can get out down there at the foot of the theater and that's just it's an alley and i like got in the alley ran around and then ran back to my hotel and i was about a block and a half away when they spotted me and this crowd just running down the road you know there's no way to prepare yourself for that you know and it's like waking up on mars yeah you had really gone into the stratosphere like i mean it really went into a place that, yeah. and you were so recognizable. Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, you know, and so by the time I finally got home, that tour lasted about a year and a half. Um, oh my, you know, I got home at the end wow. of it and there were kids camped out on our lawn at our house. And it, it, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a mess. I moved to LA. I couldn't even really be in Berkeley anymore. So it was, right. And how, how's reentry into regular life after a year and a half of touring with the hit album? Uh, well, it was a huge relief at first. And then I realized relief, yeah. that I couldn't even be home anymore. Uh, and that's when I left and moved to LA after I'd only been home about a week and a half at the end of the tour. I mean, uh, and I realized, Oh, there's no way to be here anymore. And I moved to LA and then everything got pretty good. Cause it was, a. Uh, I I felt pretty normal at the Viper room, right. you know? 
Mm-hmm. Right, because there's you're, there's other people doing like-minded stuff and getting chased out of moving theaters. <laughs> you're not the only one. Yeah, and also in LA, I kind of feel like nobody cared. It was like, right. yeah, it's true. so true. I mean, Jack so Nicholson's true. walking down the street over there. Who cares about me? It's like, <laughs> I, 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 it was just it kind is of like a no big deal. Net. Yeah. yeah. It's time to hear her side of the story. Joe and Serena sit down for an intimate conversation with Maria Georges on Bachelor Happy Hour. I have to ask, I heard a rumor that you were dating at one point one of Drake's best friends. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Listen to Bachelor Happy Hour on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Bachelor Happy Hour. Listen now everywhere you listen to podcasts and don't miss part two Monday night. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So 
Listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Just uh, real quick, Mr. Jones, What I mean, what an amazing breakthrough song, but what does Mr. Jones represent? I mean, to me, it, it's, it's an alter ego uh, of someone, uh, someone's part of them that wants fame and fortune so badly and so it desires it all. Uh, but what, what does Mr. Jones represent and what is the song about? Well, my friend Marty Jones. Um, Marty's dad, Marty was the bass player in every band I was in up until uh, Counting Crows. And even in the original version of Counting Crows, actually. Uh, and Marty's dad was a great flamenco guitar player. He's one of the few Americans to ever uh, become a really successful flamenco player in Madrid. He had left America like 20 years before, moved to Madrid, and, and he just passed away last year. Um, David Serva was his name. And uh, he happened to be back in the Bay Area at one point when Marty and I were playing in some band together. And uh, he was doing some gigs with his old flamenco troupe in the Mission in San Francisco. And so we went to one of the gigs, and man, it was incredible. Just unbelievable. I'd never heard that kind of music before, really played the way it is. And... Uh, Afterwards, we were, went out drinking with the flamenco troupe through a bunch of different bars all through San Francisco, me and Marty. And we ended up in this one bar, uh, the New Amsterdam on Columbus Street. And uh, I remember like in the corner was uh, what's his name? Chris Isaacs, drummer. Tanny Dale Johnson was sitting in the corner in this booth with like two or three women. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm remembering this wrong and they were, they could have all just been friends. Um, but it seemed to me like, wow. I remember saying to Marty, like, man, we got to get our shit together. Cause then we'd be able to talk to girls, you know, we'd be able to do all kinds of stuff. Look at this. This is the, this is the life, you know, like we, we're shy around these flamenco musicians. He's got three women at the table with, and, uh, I just remember thinking, and so I went home that night and I started writing a song about, you know, dreaming about you know, me and Marty dreaming about being rock stars, you know, and, and how silly it was, right. but also how cool it was. I mean, it's worth having dreams like that. Uh, and it's also about how they're never going to turn out to be what you think they're going to be because nothing in life does, you know, there's, it's not going right. to be what you expect, but it's also cool to dream about it. I don't know. It's a Absolutely. song about yes. both sides, of it. but it's a very Idealistic. literal song, you know, love that. Is it, but like I, when you say, uh, when everybody loves you, you can never be lonely. You know, stuff like that. You know, it's like once you get everything you've dreamed of, or you wrote this song, and then you got it. Well, yeah, you but know? you're supposed and to know I, he's wrong about that. Like, that's never going to come out. That, that, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. So that realization, like I read, that there's a quote that Jim Carrey said the other day, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Yeah. Well, it, of course it can't mm -hmm. be because there's nothing that's the answer except yourself. Like there's no way yep. to get anything in life that you don't pay for. And you know, like if you don't work out your shit, you're just going to be a rich guy with shit. You know, which is yeah, the, the <laughs> outside stuff doesn't matter. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all about like trying to figure out your life and fame and fortune. It's great for, uh, dinner reservations i'll give you that it really is it's good for dinner <laughs> reservations and it's good for tickets um but the rest of it you kind of still have to figure out your life it doesn't fix everything 
it just kind of puts you in a spotlight, which can be very difficult if you're a, a you know, a nut job like me. It was really hard. And, uh, but you know, it's okay. I, it's a life I chose and I had a lot of trouble adjusting to it. Um, the funny thing to me about Mr. Jones is how prescient it was. Like, not that I mean, anyway, I, you can write a song about dreaming about being a rock star, but I nailed the part about how it was going to not be what I thought, you know, like I, I was surprised. Which is shocking. Yeah. yeah. I got it all right years before you it had, happened. You, know? <laughs> you had you know? the foresight. Yes. And then it all came true. And then you had the realization, but yeah, you come out the other side, man. And you know, you, you know, it's, it's a part of your life. It's not, it doesn't define you, right? It's not, it's not, uh, how you get all your self uh, esteem and it's a lot of it. I'll be honest with you. Not the being a rock star <laughs> part, but the art of it, you know, like the creation. Right. I mean, a lot of my self esteem, a lot of who I am is based in the work I've done and the work I do. I, I, I mean, it, it just more so than even most of my friends who are also creative people. Um, I am very much that and i've struggled to be other things in my life i think i'm just at this point in my life i'm 59 and i'm just starting to get to figure out how to find value in other things about myself but for the longest time that's really all it was the the confusing part to me was that the fame was never like the really impressive part to me the success the success to me was like the work like the record i thought that first record was great i thought the second record was great um, you know, I, I think I love all of our records, you know, that, that I'm so proud when they're done. And then like a while later, a bunch of people in the world either decide to love them or not, or be completely bored by them. But that's so separate from the work part. And yet that's the part where all the importance and the weight goes, all the weight goes on that decision that all those people make way later. That's where everyone yeah. assigns all the importance. And that was always really weird to me natural but yeah christine we were just talking to ben about i was just gonna say that yeah i was just gonna say that what you know talking to ben and looking at you know he it took him a little while because he you know what we really talked about was when you're in the process you know that that's really where you're in your craft and in your artistic mode the rest you have to let go of but it's not that easy, right? It's not that easy when the world suddenly has has an opinion, when critics have an opinion. And I wonder for you, were there any albums that were harder to make than others? And did that, you know, even just your first, like making that first album, was it just all fun because you guys were, this was so new and exciting or was it pressure? Was it a pressure cooker? And was it, you know, intense? Not really a pressure cooker, but the first one was brutal. Uh, just because I don't think we hadn't been a band for very long. And I had some very strong ideas about the kind of band I wanted us to be. And it was not the kind of band we were like those demos were great, but I didn't want to make a record like those demos. I thought we sounded kind of like late model Roxy music. It was very uh, rooted in the eighties and, uh, it, it didn't hit like I wanted it to hit. And I made everybody change everything they were doing uh, when we made that first album, which was brutally hard on everybody. Yeah. You know, Dave Bryson, our guitar player, used to play with a ton of effects and like reverbs. We made him ditch all the effects. Uh, uh, Charlie had been playing synthesizers. 
We made him uh, play piano and Hammond B3, which he was thrilled about, actually. Matt, our bass player, had been playing all these fretless basses. We made him just get some old Hoffner bass. Uh, our drummer had, like, this huge drum set. We stripped it down to, like, five pieces. Uh, I, I wanted us to get in a room and learn to play together, and, and that was really hard on everybody. we just gotten signed to a big record deal, and I said, that's great, but everything you're doing is wrong. <laughs> we're throwing we're it do. all out the window, and we're yeah. starting over. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it was the right decision, but it was brutal at the time. And I didn't know how to be a band leader and how to like, all I knew was the disagreements. Maybe I didn't know that I had any authority at all. So every disagreement seemed to me to threaten to take all of it away. So I was really insecure, you know, and I'm trying to learn to be a leader, which is really hard, you know? And, uh, at the same time as I'm trying to rearrange all of our music, and get everybody to do this thing. Everybody in the band quit at one point or another during the first record. Oh, I mean, stop it. And then we all sort of just like worked it out and the record turned out great, you know? And uh, everything we did was the right choice. It was just, uh, Growing it was hard. Things, right? Yeah. Learning as you go. I mean, yeah. and I have to imagine at that period of time, and I know you said you weren't a kid, but still when something is that new and that big, it's like, you don't, you're not given that skill set. So, no. you know, the stakes are high and the, you know, it, the, I, I can imagine that, that, that it got intense. Um, I never and, felt, never felt that again after that. It was just that first one. Every, after that, it was all just like, wow, we're free to be completely creative. This is great. I know people talk know. about all the pressure on the second record, but I didn't feel any of that. I was just like free to make any, we could do any, as far as I was concerned after that, we could do anything we wanted. And no one could tell us anything because we've been so very right that first time, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that took guts, man. You know, you had a demo that had a bidding war with, you know, all uh, four or five hit songs on it. And then you tell your band, we got to change everything. That takes yeah. guts. I mean, and luckily, uh, like our producer agreed with me, you know, and uh, the people that mattered agreed, but. uh a few of them, but it was really hard with the band at that one point. Um, but you know, this is not supposed to be easy anyways. You know, this is really hard stuff. It's like, you're trying to make something, uh, that lasts forever, something timeless. Uh, that's, that's hard. And most people don't make things that last forever. You know, they, things get very dated very quickly if you're not careful. Um, I still think that first album is the one that has the most tendency to feel dated to me. The other ones feel much more timeless, but the the songs on that first album are so good that like uh, it just and, works. Yeah, yeah, David, you know, when you started the interview just saying it's it was the soundtrack for everyone in the 90s. I mean, I mean, how how many you know because that was really back in the day of making those mixtapes, old school <laughs> mixtapes yeah i mean the amount of play of exchange mixtapes adam with you on there and um yeah i mean it 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 still does feel timeless i mean i'm sure you can look at it from a different eye but i feel like um you know it just holds up it, it's just all of it i think it showed up yeah. on a lot of mixtapes. i like to think that a lot of people played anna begins in dark dorm rooms and made out you know, I love it. <laughs> Years later, uh, uh, James Vanderbeek, you know, James came to me of and said, course. Hey, I'm in this movie. He's like, I got to play this douchebag and I got to totally seduce this woman. And I want to do it by playing 
uh, Anna Begins. And I was like, you know, I think that's perfect. He's like, a, he's like a real weaselly guy, and he's like totally seduced. He's going to get laid by, he plays it on guitar for this girl in a dorm room. I wish I could remember the name of the movie. Um, but when he, when he presented me with the idea, I was like, oh, that's so perfect. I'm sure people have tried that. You should definitely do it, you know, because he's not a great guy in the movie. He's a bad guy, kind of. Not bad, he's, but he's definitely trying to get laid, and he's trying to seduce this girl. And I was thinking that um, it's, it's because I'm sure so many people told me they put it on mixtapes. And like, got with a girl because they played Anna Begins on some tape in a dorm room. You know, it's definitely. And when up. they break, and when they break up, they have Long December on, uh, yeah, on, on repeat <laughs> at their own house. I watched that video last night, man, and I got to say, first of all, I, I miss videos so much, and that that video is like a beautiful film about a, a, a bad breakup. Like, what was that song about, and what did? What are you trying to be forgiven for? Was there like a infidelity or what, is there a story behind it? Oh, I think there's always plenty of stuff in life that you need to be forgiven for. Um, but I mean, I think we all have, no matter who you are, there's plenty of stuff every year that we need to be forgiven. Uh, at the time, uh, it was about, did you know Jennifer Colleen? Did you know Jen? No. Well, no. she was a friend of mine. She got hit by a car. Uh, and uh, it just destroyed the whole left side of her body. Her and her friend, uh, it, was actually, it was actually with Jada De Laurentiis. They were crossing a street in Santa Monica, and somebody tried to pass on the right, and just as they oh. walked out in the crosswalk, it just destroyed Jen. Um, so she was in the hospital. She was really good friends with my friends, uh, with Tracy Falco and Samantha Mathis. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we heard, we all went down the next day to the hospital, and she was dating Matt Perry. Mm -hmm. um, so we all went down to the hospital the next day to um, see how she was doing. She was still in surgery. Her mother had flown out from back east. Uh, and we spent that afternoon, and that night her mom was like, well, I can be here tonight, all night, but I have to go home tomorrow to get some sleep. I have to at least go to Jen's house to get some sleep and uh, uh, change my clothes. Can I, who can be here during the day? And, She's looking around the room, and no one's raising their hands or anything. And I mean, I'm making the second record, so I, I, I don't do anything in the first half of the day usually. So I said, uh, yeah, I, I can be here during the day. I felt so guilty. I, I, I didn't really know her that well, but I, I knew that I had the early part of the afternoon free. So I went to the hospital the next day and hung out. And I started going. Every, I would go to the hospital in the afternoon for a little while, like around 11 or 12, and spend a few hours with Jen and then... I would go to the studio and I'd work until that night and then I would go to the Viper Room and bartend. Um, that was my schedule then. And I know Jen, Jen who's like my sister now, um, for, has been for what, however long it's been, 30 years now, uh, we're so close. And uh, her, she said that uh, when she was more lucid a few days later, they were, her and her mother were talking and her mother's like, who's this Adam guy? You've never really spoken to him. He's great. He's coming every day. And she's like... I don't know. It's weird. I don't really know him, but he is great. You know, he's really nice. You know, <laughs> we just kind of became God, close that's beautiful. in the hospital. And it was totally just like, I, no one else was raising their hand. I didn't know what to do, you know? And so I did it. And I, now we're like, you get bonded by that. But a lot Absolutely. of it was about, you know, Jen's time in the hospital and what the other stuff that was going on in my life right then. And someone I met and, uh, you know, it was about like, I was in the middle of making this record, you know, I'm making a record. I'm still writing songs for it. Uh, 
And I, I remember leaving the Viper one night, you know, a couple months into this and going to Samantha and Tracy's house. Uh, and I think it was like me and them and Christian Slater, maybe Jude Law. We were all hanging around at their house. And then I went home that night at like four in the morning. And between four and six, I wrote the song. And then... Uh, you wrote that song in, in two hours? Yeah, probably a little less, something like that. And then I went to the studio the next day after the hospital around dinner time, and I taught it to the band before dinner, and then we recorded it after dinner. That's like take six, and that is just a complete take. Stop you know, it. The only overdubs on that song are incredible. after we got it, we knew we had it, and we went into the kitchen, and then I came back out and grabbed our engineer and said, hey, just run it down two more times, and I sang the harmonies one line of the harmonies through it, and then the second line of the harmonies through it. Those are the only overdubs on the whole song. The rest of it's completely live. I played the piano. Charlie played the accordion. Um, so, yeah, it was written and recorded in under 24 hours because I got to the Viper before it closed that night and played it for everybody after closing on, on the speakers in my... I had a convertible Carmen Ghia back then. I still have it, but I played it for everybody in my car, like after we got off work at the Viper. So I was there. Oh my God. Oh. You wrote, recorded and played a song for an audience all in the matter of a yeah. day or two. No, under 24 hours. That's sure. insanely incredible. Cause oh it's God. only take, well, that's one thing about this band is we got really good at like, we could get in a room. We got, I, we pushed so hard to learn to sit in a circle and hear each other on that first album. That by the second album, when we were doing something like Long December, we could feel it right away with each other. So, like by take six or seven or whatever it is, we could get it. You know, we could play that kind of stuff. Some things take a long time, but sometimes things just pretty instant. You know, with this band. And was Courtney your choice for that? Were you guys friends before? Were you? Was Courtney always good? Or is that how you met? Courtney, uh, through, through I, the video. I met her before then because I met her when I was dating Jen. Okay, um, got it. But she was also uh, Jennifer Cohen's roommate. Oh. So we spent a lot the of girl, time in the hospital together as well. The girl who got hit by the car was Jennifer Aniston. No, it was Courtney's, Courtney's roommate. Courtney Cox. Oh, Courtney. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so we, we, you know, uh, and then by that time, sometime later, we were dating. So not, I don't think when I wrote the song, we weren't, but. Sometime after. Yeah, that. the girls. You you seem to had uh, have a lot of success with the women. <laughs> with the ladies. <laughs> I wouldn't have called it success until recently. I had a lot of failed relationships with wonderful people. Um, a that, lot of opportunity. Let's say a lot of opportunity. Yes, yes. Being, that's what being young is about. That's what uh, that's what it was all about. Yeah. Now, Mike, Z, and I have been together for five years now, and I would say I finally found success in a relationship. Um, that's amazing. But uh, but before that, no, I had a lot of very public failures is what I would call them with wonderful <laughs> people. I wouldn't say it was their fault, but uh, yeah, oh, oh, I'm a charming guy. What can I say? You know? You're terrific. Hey, Adam, <laughs> the other video that I want to talk about, too, was um, hanging around because I remember just knowing so many people that we're, we're going to be in that video. I think Ben was working with Terry Polo at the time. And of course, Heather and, you know, who else was in there? Meredith Salinger. I mean, it was such a such a quintessential 90s group. Um, well, you know, and clearly, we were, the, were you guys? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. What were we going to say? 
No, I was just going to say, were those all your pals? And did that song spur from that group? And or did you just say, we got I got to get everybody in and we're just going to do this? And because it's such a fun video. Well, like, you know, it, we were... it makes people jealous who aren't there in that video. <laughs> <laughs> when we recorded uh, Hanging Around, we actually wanted it to feel like a party at a house at one point. So we actually had a lot of those same people over the studio one night and everybody just kind of got in a circle and clapped because that was, that was a sound we wanted for the song. It was a song that involved a lot of drum loops and a lot of sort of technical stuff. So we also wanted to sort of like cut it with some real stuff, like people standing around clapping. Uh, and so when we, were, when we finished the record and when we got ready to make a video for that song, we were like, well, we should kind of recreate you know, because we would always record up until uh, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. We never really made a record in a recording studio. We, we would do some overdubbing in studios, but we always, we would rent these houses and build studios in the houses. There was all these white elephant sort of leftover mansions in L.A. Yeah. You could rent for cheap and we could make, we could just kind of all move in and make a record. So Dude, that's how they did it in the 70s, right? Right. Up Laurel Canyon. Yeah. So that's what we did. We, we kind of... Uh, we had all these friends over to clap in this house we were doing it at, but we thought, well, we should make a video just like this. Let's just do it at my house. You know, like, I wondered if that was actually your house. That's yeah, so Yeah, that was cool. my house. Because the studio house was gone by that time. We were done right. renting it. So we, we got a lot. Of, I mean, it was just a lot of the same people. They actually been there when we recorded it. We just got a bunch of our friends. I don't know that all of them were there when we did the recording. I can't remember who came down for that. But uh, we just got a bunch of our friends in my living room. We filmed that scene as if it was, we were kind of recreating the way we made records in the video for parts of it. Um, so yeah, so that was cool. Awesome. That, that, I really enjoyed that because it, it was like, I have all these pictures from that day. Everybody's out by the pool. We're all hanging out. This is not the Laurel Canyon house anymore. It was the, when I finally had to buy a bigger house to take care of all my <laughs> freeloading roommates. Um, <laughs> yeah, and a Amy Smart's in that video too, yeah? Oh yeah, there, yeah. yeah. It was a great, it, that's such a great video. So, and David, I agree with you. I do miss the, the days of those kind of videos, you know, I, where there was I a know, story I, I, where they were like little mini films, you know? I was watching, I had to go to Vivo. I guess Vivo is where you watch videos now. But I asked my 13 year old, I asked Chelsea, do you watch videos? And she was like, sometimes, but it's not like it was. Every song came, was followed by a beautiful artistic video, right? When we were in, when we were growing up, when MP MTV came along, and I just missed, I really missed that. I was so glad when it was gone. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> with too much pressure? Well, no, there were bad, I mean, the bad things about it being gone have to do with the fact that no one wants to pay for music or do anything anymore. Um, right. But for me, at the time, it was like, we put all this work into these records, and we have complete control over them. You know, it's just us as a band with a producer and an engineer. And so for the musical part, I feel like what we make musically is so completely us. And I felt like completely like in control of making it great. And then once you're done, you've got to go promote it with this thing that you can't trust at all how it's made. You're kind of trying. It's an art form that even if you exert as much control as you want, I don't have any gifts in that art form, really. So you're right. lucky. You're not a filmmaker. It's yeah. just luck if you get a director who can do it or not do it. And at a point, you know, the way videos were really made after a while, I don't know. You know, guys who wanted to make videos, a lot of guys who are commercial directors, you know? Yeah. And they would absolutely. have an idea, like, uh, we could just film this backwards. We could film this backwards, <laughs> and the guys could learn how to lip sync it backwards, and then when we put the video out, it'll look cool because it's forward. 
That's just an idea. That's like, a, right. that's, a, that's a, I remember that being done several times. And a lot of the times it had nothing to do with your song. These guys would have a bank of ideas that they wanted to do. Broad concepts, right. Broad yeah. concepts that would be show offy, you know, good for a reel or yeah. Yeah. And then they like, oh, yeah, I want to do this song. I have an idea for your video. But it's really just this idea they had. And so you're kind of stuck with these guys. And sometimes it turned out great. And sometimes it turned out mediocre. But it was hard for you to really exert any control over that. So your whole, like, promotional mechanism for promoting this work that is completely you was so dependent on all these other people. That was terrifying to me. It was like every video just was sometimes they'd be great. And a lot of times... I don't know. And then I think I started feeling really self-conscious on film. And then I was, I started being the part, I had been the part that was really good about our videos early on. And then I think I started being the part that was kind of not great about them because I started getting really self-conscious. Um, interesting. It was yeah, just this that's hard understandable. thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. But like the, the long December video is, is, is really beautiful. It's beautifully shot. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, like a, a little, a beautiful little film. Yeah, it turned out great, um, that one. Uh, talking about the, the music industry, I mean, how do you feel about how things have changed? I mean, when you, you know, that first album, everyone still bought CDs and you did make videos and everyone listened uh, from song one till the end of the album. It's very different now, uh, but everything's more accessible. I could pull up, I mean, I could pull up all your music in two seconds. And so can the whole world. So how's your, how do you feel about the change in the music industry? Well, there's a couple sides to it. I mean, I would challenge any industry to continue to survive when half of your income just disappears. And that's kind of what's happened. There's almost no income anymore from record sales. It's just touring. Right. So, you know, that's wow. hard on everybody because, I mean, I don't know if there could, you know, if half your income is gone, it's very hard to survive. But... There are other things that are, let's put it this way. It used to be that you had to spend a lot of money to go into a recording studio to make a record. And then you had to spend even more money to press CDs and to hire guys in trucks to drive them all over the country and the world to put them in stores where the best possible thing is that like if they sell out of the three each store took, which should seem like the best possible you know, end thing, but then they don't have them anymore. So if anybody wants to go and they're out of, you know, like to go buy it, they're out of them now. And no one's going back twice. There used to be a lot of really hard things. And all of those things meant you had to have a record company because it was too expensive otherwise. Now anyone can make a record. They can do it in their bedroom, on their computer. And you don't have to send press CDs and send them out to record stores. You could just upload to Bandcamp. You know, it's really easy. And that, that opened music up to everyone as opposed to just a select few and it also meant that bands could stay together for longer because it was something you could do in your spare time you could and so you could have 10 years of making records without real success as opposed to like one year and then you got dumped off your you got dropped from your label and then you know what i mean it used to be way harder for bands to get good because they didn't have that kind of time uh, and you used to have to have a record company which often sucked um so it's a weird, it's a weird thing. There's like, I, to me, it sucks that nobody pays for anything because that's just like for thousands of years, humans have been deciding that art isn't really worth anything. I mean, they really want to go see it, but they don't want to pay for it. Right. Um, and that's been right. true since people were scrawling things on cave walls. Right. You know, uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's a mistake, but 
it's history, you know, and I do think there's so much more music now than there ever was before. There's so much better music because it's just more people can do it. And I, I think that's great. Uh, it, it, it's hard to think of something worse for people to need to depend on than a record company. There's more incompetence yeah. packed in one building in a record company than in anything else in the world. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, the, the democratization of the arts, you know, you don't need to be allowed to do it. You can create your work and put it out there. But also touring and live events have become so much more valuable. I mean, they're precious. Well, it's all you've got now. I mean, it'd be great if, yeah. if the democratization came with people still thinking that, that it had any value. That we would still like buy a record because we love the record, as opposed to just. Well, don't don't you make free. money from Apple Music and Spotify? I mean, yeah, but it's it's fractions of fractions of fractions of a penny. It's kind mm -hmm. of equivalent to what radio used to be. You know, you didn't make your money from radio play. You got money from radio play, but it's not where you made your money. It, it, you made it from record sales. You know, and uh, and even though back then you were getting fifteen percent from your record label, who took eighty five something you know like even though now you get all of it it's just so much less it literally like it's like that part of the business doesn't exist anymore so all you've got left is touring which quite honestly is exhausting but <laughs> yeah I do love you still playing. enjoy it though do you still enjoy a live audience oh god i love touring um and uh in a lot of ways i'm more I'd say it's different now, but for most of my life, I've been more comfortable on tour than I have been in the rest of my life. I just knew where to be on those days, and I knew how to do that. Uh, and the kind of I was agoraphobic about the rest of life; those open days like that. Interesting, you know? yeah. But but left yeah, with I'm, yourself, but I, yeah. But I'd like to be able to stay home too, you know. Um, like I, I, my girlfriend just made her first film, which she wrote and taught herself to produce, and they made a short, and it got into South by Southwest. You know, Fantastic. Awesome. there are only it got into the Midnight Shorts program. I think last year there were nine shorts in the Midnight Shorts program and 24 shorts in the whole festival. So the fact that she got in is incredible. I'm so flipped out and proud of her. That's I'm not so going to be cool. there. That is uh, South yeah. by Southwest is incredible. Now, I'm going to be I'm going to be in New Zealand and Australia. I won't be able to be there, which is that's the other side of tour. I've got to go on tour. I can't be at South by Southwest for the biggest moment in my girlfriend's life. Which is, you know, I'm kind of glad she gets to have this experience for herself, you know? Yeah. But that's what touring's like. You miss a lot of things because you're gone, you know? And Adam, does it ever, do you ever have that moment of, you know, we talked about it earlier where I said meeting people and being in this, you know, world we're so lucky to be in and, and access to such incredible, talented people. Do you ever have that moment I mean, you're now 30 plus years in to your, you're still touring. Like you are in an elite group of bands that can still go out and sell out stadiums that pe people are dying to see. I mean, do you have that moment where you're like, pinch me? Like this is, I can't believe I'm here, you know? Yeah, mostly, mostly this thing we're doing, especially in music, it lasts a year or two and then people just, collapse from exhaustion and apathy at the thought of right, you. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it doesn't take very long for people to get really tired of your existence in music. So to be doing it, like this year is 30 years since our first record. 
Um, I think, yeah, September this year, I think, is the 30-year anniversary, something like that. extraordinary. That is extraordinary. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, really rare. I was talking in a lot of interviews about this a couple of years ago because I remember in the middle of our first year of touring, the Stones called and asked us to open for them. And it was oh 1994. God. And so we went uh, and we did a bunch of gigs that summer with the Stones. And I remember thinking that first day, the first day we were there was... August 1st, 94, at RFK Stadium. It was my 30th birthday. And that's our first gig oh of the Stones. And I remember thinking, stone. wow, the Stones' first album is around 64. So I'm 30 <laughs> today. Their fucking band is 30. How wild is that? I mean, can you imagine if that were to happen to me? And here I am, like, talking to you guys right now. And this is 30 years this year. You know, like, for us, it's more than 30 years for the band, actually. But it's 30 years since our first record. And... You know, that's, I remember on my 30th birthday thinking how wild that was. Right. And now here like that I was am. unattainable. Unattainable, yeah. I'm sure. Right? And Impossible. Well, you did it. Now you got to go ask a young artist to come open for you. And he's going to feel the, ex or she is going to feel the exact same way. <laughs> These guys have been around for 30 years. Well, it's funny because the Australian tour, it's Frank Turner, who's a, a good friend, but also was someone really hugely influenced by us when he was younger. And then this summer... It'll be Dashboard Confessional. And, and Chris Caraba is one of my best friends, but he's someone I, I know who grew up. In, in both of those cases, they were punk musicians who heard our record and decided to do different kinds of songwriting. It's funny because it's true of both of them now that I think about it. They both came from punk bands and they both like heard our early records and thought, oh, I, I can do something different. You know, like they both told me that over the years. And, you know, they're like brothers to me now, but. It's funny, when, I, when we first met, I remember talking to them about that, like, and they're not that much younger than me. Uh, they're younger enough. You know? They're just <laughs> right. both more mature than me. Um, I mean, yeah. any, any artist would be, uh, you know, blown away by the longevity. And, and you said you wanted to, even on that first album, make something that lasts. Yeah. And you have. And, and, and that's, you know, you're in, in rare air there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, um, I think about that a lot. It really is. It, I mean, you don't notice it because, you know, you're just living each day. I've been on tour for, you know, all these years, so it didn't seem like anything changed. Like, I don't know that I noticed when the 90 ends, except we had a, the 90s ended because we had except we had a party, you know, like <laughs> we had a big party. Um, but, but, you know, because it's just it's sort of continued. Uh, but, yeah, it's very, very rare to. A lot of it is just stubbornness, I think, you know. No, no, I think it's the music, man. People still love it. And, you know, I just read uh, Elton John's tour is the most successful tour in history. You know, I'm, how old is he? Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I just saw him at Dodger Stadium. Dude, he's as he plays his heart out, you know, yeah. like like it's his first time. And uh, and I'm you know, I, I've seen you several times, but you do the same thing. You come on, you you lay it all out there. You leave your heart on the stage and that's why people come. And that's why the music lasts. Yeah, I think we've. Uh, it still means the world, you know, to me anyways, you know, it's like. Each gig is still really cool to me, you know, that's so awesome. Yeah, I'll just say someone who moved to L.A. in the early 90s, I really felt like, I don't know, a, a lot of a lot of great music lets the audience feel like it was written for them or that they can interpret it into their life. And, and that's what your music 
did for me and it was so meaningful to me in my life. So I wanted to thank you. And it's been such an amazing pleasure to have you on here. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, I, I never got invited to one of those parties, but this <laughs> this was our party, Adam. <laughs> this was the Adam, party. Adam, throw a party and invite Christine. <laughs> we were just this too weekend. shy. We were just too shy to go talk to the, the Marsha Brady girl living next door, okay? <laughs> Same. I know. Well, that's our lesson. Our lesson is uh, now, now we're here. So, uh, yeah, let's go see a show together. Let's get together. And uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. This was awesome. My pleasure. Tell Ben I said hi. We should just go have dinner. Yes, we'll do it. We'll do it for sure. All right. Thank you so right. much. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Okay. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and give us five stars. And please follow us on Instagram at Hey Dude, the 90s called. See you next time. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.